Guys, I don't mean to alarm you, but if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, tomorrow's December. Christmas is rattling closer by the day, and I, for one, am pretty excited. What am I getting? Well, I like to think I'm more about experiences than new objects, and it's unlikely Santa can sort me a meeting with Greta Thunberg, but it's not going to stop me from putting in my letter. Even though the evenings are darker and the weather a bit more damp, I'm still enjoying getting outside this winter. Not everyone likes getting their hands dirty, but today, that's exactly what we're going to do because we're going to talk about soil. And to start the show, we met a group of children from a Gael school in Dublin's inner city. Roll call. Who have we got? Dewitch, Bennis, Amdum, Fiona, Tina, John, Ryan, Esme, Rory, Kieran, Jackson, Sanamdum, Keen, the Freyna, Holly, Sanamdum, Jean Kelly, Keen, Sanamdum, George, Daisy, May. We spoke to the students of sixth class in Colossal because for the past few years, the school's been taking part in a fun project with the previous venue visited for Ecolation, Mud Island Community Garden in North Strand. Every Thursday, all of our class heads to Mud Island. There's trees, there's loads of different plants. There's like a greenhouse shed for all the tools. When we go to Mud Island, typically Ross tells us what we're going to be doing. We'll get the equipment and he gets the seeds and whatever else we need. We water the plants and we harvest the plants. I love just getting to plant the plants and then seeing it grow over the times I've been there. I think we've grown beetroots. I'd never done it properly, like I've never really planted. I would have helped like maybe like pick out the weeds and stuff, but Mud Island's definitely helped with that. It's fun to just hang out with your friends there as well. Just get a bit of time out of school. You just get a lot out of it, like free food. In the summer, sometimes you can try the stuff and you can see if you like it or if you don't, then you don't eat it again. I've had an onion. I've had this, like, pea yolk cabbage that we grew there last year. I really love like learning about like how plants grow and how like certain plants need more assistance and growth than others and how like you need to care for them and it really like instigates responsibility when you're growing plants because it makes you feel like you're responsible for something. You definitely have to be patient but you definitely get a good reward in the end. I like the way we learned how differently you plant seeds like how if they're big or the size of your thumb basically the seed will dig it as deep as big as it is or if there are um, bulbs that they go like two times deeper and we've probably grown like pumpkins recently we've grown onions tulips and all that it's not really about how dirty you get it's how you enjoy it i love when you just stick your hand in and you can plant it in and when you come back in a couple of months you realize i've done this i've planted seeds fruit it's just cool to say that I did this. So, it's clear that these students get a lot out of getting their hands in the earth. And someone else who's no stranger to this is our guest today. I'm George Monbiot. I'm an environmental campaigner and journalist. George Monbiot writes for The Guardian and studied zoology at Oxford. But his investigative work on the environment has been making waves since the 1980s. From articles to award-winning documentaries, lectures to the books he's written, it's no surprise that in 1995, Nelson Mandela presented him with a United Nations Global 500 Award for Outstanding Environmental Achievement. You might have seen the brilliant short film on the climate crisis he made with Greta Thunberg. Children like me are giving up their education to protests. But we can still fix this. You can still fix this. 
to survive, we need to stop burning fossil fuels. But this alone will not be enough. Lots of solutions are talked about. But what about a solution that is right in front of us? I'll let my friend George explain. There is a magic machine that sucks carbon out of the air, costs very little, and builds itself. It's called a tree. His latest book is called Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, and is all about agriculture and the ground beneath our feet, the soil we walk on and use to provide us with the food that we can eat, something the students are trying out in Mud Island. But how much do they know about the soil? What do I know about soil? Well, I know that soil provides great rich nutrients to our plants, which means it can easily grow faster. When you dig up soil, you find roots, worms, centipedes and sometimes rocks. You need soil when you're planting plants and in soil there's loads of like little insects so there's loads of worms and they crawl around and they give the soil air. They kind of help break the kind of hard mud. Worms can make the soil very loose so so that the air and heat can get into it. And also worms will poo in the soil and that's good fertilizer for it. Worms take the leaves under the ground and turn them into compost. Soil is an ecosystem. It's not just stuff. It's actually a living system. And more than that, it's a biological structure. It's actually created by the creatures that live in it. If it weren't for those creatures, if soil were dead, it would just fall apart. Its structure would collapse. It's like a coral reef. It's built by living organisms. And that life, the life of the soil, is absolutely crucial to everything that grows in it. If that life collapses, the soil will eventually just degrade and blow away. And that's what we call a dust bowl. And dust bowls remove the soil more or less completely from the land and it takes thousands of years then to recover. Soil produces roughly 99% of our calories and yet we treat it like dirt. We treat it with total disregard. We allow it to be eroded, degraded, compacted, poisoned. And as a result, that seriously compromises our chances of survival. If we lose this ecosystem on which everything else stands, everything we've ever built, everything we are, depends on the soil, then we lose everything. Wow, I don't think I'd really thought that much about the soil before. It's clear that its health means a lot, and the life contained within it is key to a lot more, even our own survival. I guess we'd better overcome any fear we might have of the creepy crawlies that call it home. Well, well, most of the time when we dig under the ground, we find worms and centipedes or other kind of insects, caterpillars, flies, ants, and all of them. When we're digging, they just start crawling up, and it's kind of funny. They're a bit scary, but, like, we don't really go near them. I'm not afraid of creepy crawlies. Like, I'd be pretty chill with them. I don't really like the look of the centipedes. don't like the worms, but they do help the soil, so you kind of have to leave them there. If you're actually digging deeper to realise how much we need insects for our soil and to make sure we keep everything good. It's good for them to be in the soil because they uh, fertilise it. The snails, though, you have to get rid of them because they eat all the crops. If I was shrunk down to the size of a worm, I would um, I'd probably just chill around. I'd just worm about, yeah. 
I think we should like and let the worms roam, yeah, and poo. Yeah. So worms and beetles are easily spotted. But what do you think you'd see if you took a handful of healthy earth and put it under a microscope? I think if I looked under a microscope, I'd see lots of nutrients. It takes a while to grow, so I just don't think it really does much. Like, I think you'd see worms and all gathering around it and, like, maybe some insects, like, examining it, see what it is, like, what type of plant it is, maybe. They probably do inspect them, the ants, and probably wonder what's planting down there or what's being done. When the light comes in, I think it eats all that and it grows up the root, the plant, during the side of the soil. I always wonder what it looks like down there, you know, with all the seeds and seeing it progress, like from seed up to whatever, like whatever it is, like a pumpkin or something. And I think it'd, it'd probably look pretty cool if you looked at it. It's really fascinating. Uh, it depends massively on which time of year you're looking. But if it's a time when temperatures are quite high and there's moisture in the soil, then it just explodes into life as soon as you magnify it. You don't even need a microscope. Just with an ordinary jeweler's lens, which costs you seven, eight euros, you can see an extraordinary panoply of life, which you would never have guessed was there. In every crumb of soil, in the right conditions, you'll find some beastie that you probably never heard of. I mean, there are entire orders, entire classes, entire phyla of animals in the soil which the great majority of people are unaware of. In fact, even I, as a zoologist, a whole lifetime in natural history, as soon as I started looking in the lens, I was like, what the heck is this? Oh my God, this is a whole new phylum I wasn't even aware of. <laughs> and it's really fascinating. In a square metre of soil, in, in a, at about our latitude in, in temperate climates, you will find as great an abundance and diversity as you would at least in a hectare of rainforest in the tropics. It's absolutely swarming with a huge variety of life. And what I found the first time I investigated a handful of soil, and it took me a couple of hours to, to work through it, was that I had seen more of the major branches of the animal kingdom than I would in a week's safari in the Serengeti. Part of the soil about which we need to learn a lot more is to do with the root systems, and it's called the rhizosphere, which was news to me and the students. I have no idea what the rhizosphere is. Uh, No, I have no clue what the rhizosphere is, sorry. I don't know what that is. It makes me think of the atmosphere, like the ozone layer. Is it like sunlight? It like lets like sunlight through, except like sunlight that's like not negative to flowers, like assists them in growth or something. Mm, maybe it's like the atmosphere is rising. I was thinking when the plant grows and like it's kind of lifetime, maybe in like a sphere. So the rhizosphere is the zone immediately surrounding the root hair. So as plants grow, they put these tiny little root hairs out into the soil. And those root hairs are how they get their nutrients, but they also deliver lots of other services to the plants. It's it's the water, but it's a a big part of their defense mechanism also depends on those root hairs. And what happens when the root hairs enter a new little speck of soil, they grow into it, is that the plant starts talking. And this, for me, was one of the big revelations that plants can talk. And they talk through chemical messages, messages which are tremendously sophisticated. What they're doing is calling out to particular species of bacteria which are lying dormant in the soil. 
And most of the time, most bacteria just stay there in a state of suspended animation, waiting for the signal that wakes them up. And when they receive the specific bat squeak, which, which wakes up that particular species, and that one alone, because plants don't want to wake up all the bacteria, some of which will harm them, then they say, oh, hello, yes, I'm here. And then the plant floods them with sugar. And the amazing thing is that between about 10% and 40% of all the sugars that plants create through photosynthesis, they pour into the soil, into the zone immediately surrounding the root hair called the rhizosphere. And what they're doing is feeding the bacteria so that then they can multiply in enormous numbers around that root hair and start delivering nutrients to the plant because the plant can't extract the minerals it needs directly from the soil. It needs the bacteria and the fungi in the soil to extract them on its behalf and deliver those minerals to the plant. The bacteria do other things as well. The friendly bacteria which the plant has woken up, they fight off the pathogens which might attack the plant root. And they also fire up the plant's immune system. So even if the plant's being attacked above ground by caterpillars or by aphids, for instance, then it sends a signal out to the bacteria in, in the soil. And those bacteria bounce the signal back in a different way into the plant, and that fires up the immune system. And what happens as a result of the plant feeding these bacteria is you get some of the densest bacterial colonies in the world surrounding that root hair. Now, some of this might begin to be ringing a bell. Sound vaguely familiar? Incredibly dense communities of bacteria which are delivering nutrients in return for being fed with sugars, which are um, defending the organism against disease and are firing up the organism's immune system. Oh yes, all that happens in the human gut. And here's the extraordinary thing. There are over a thousand phyla of bacteria, major groups of bacteria on Earth. And there are four phyla which are dominant in the rhizosphere, that section of soil immediately surrounding the root hair. And there are four phyla which are dominant in the human gut. They're the same four phyla. And what you see when you begin to understand this is that the rhizosphere, which lies immediately outside the plant's root, is the plant's external gut. So the root system of plants, those that feed the soil that help feed us, are living beings. Although community gardens like Mud Island offer people a chance to grow their own food, it's only a tiny part of what's currently available, and it certainly doesn't make its way into our usual supermarkets. The scale of food production means that most of our produce comes from large-scale farming of fruits and vegetables, but in Ireland, above all, meat and dairy. Agriculture currently accounts for about 35% of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. And while our countryside is sold as green and pleasant, the detrimental impacts upon the life forms above and below ground can't be ignored. So we have this sort of mythic conception of agriculture, which goes back a very long way. You know, in the Bible, Jesus is the Good Shepherd and Agnes Dei, the Lamb of God. The Old Testament was written by the descendants of herding peoples, of pastoral peoples, who look back with nostalgia to when Abraham's herds darkened the plains, and they see the city as being this evil place. And then there's a similar tradition in the secular literature, going back to the pastoral poetry of Theocritus in the third century BC, picked up by Virgil, and then big time by the Renaissance poets, 
then picked up by TV, you know, in, in, in the 20th century where it's all sheep farming and stuff and we romanticize this tremendously. And we imagine that that's good and natural and wholesome. Whereas actually per kilogram of produce is the most damaging thing we can possibly do to the planet because of the vast amount of land it, it requires and the huge amount of greenhouse gases. It's not just that cows and sheep produce loads of methane, they also produce lots of nitrous oxide in their dung, which is another very powerful greenhouse gas. And by occupying so much land, they prevent the formation of much more carbon-rich natural habitats. And then, of course, you know, you've got the alternative, which is intensive farming, which has a whole load of problems of its own with its massive use of pesticides, of fertilizer, of herbicides, of irrigation water, all of which are putting unbearable pressure on planetary systems. And yet we've neglected this issue. We've finally got round to campaigning against fossil fuels and asking that fossil fuels are kept in the ground. Well, now we have massively to reduce the environmental impacts of agriculture. We now know that food production alone will bust the carbon budget by between two and three times by the end of this century. Just food production. When you look at the final declarations of the climate summits that there have been so far, not a single one is talking about reducing those impacts. Not a single one is talking about having less animal farming, for instance, which is by far and away the best thing we can do to reduce impacts. And so it's just been terribly neglected and that has to change. Community gardens offer a tiny example of how things can work on a small scale. In Mud Island they don't use artificial fertiliser, they use like real one which makes it a lot easier and better. All the garden waste is turned into compost and put back into the soil. We use compost to make the soil richer. One of the things that the soil do, it keeps carbon inside it. When you dig up the soil you're releasing CO2. I don't know if farmers do it differently. I've never not really been to a farm that much. We need the soil so we can uh, have like vegetables and fruits and all so we can eat them. But intensive agriculture requires a ramping up of productivity and increased need for land that can rapidly provide food for us and food for livestock. And that has an impact that we might not see. Well, I don't want to create a sort of bucolic romantic vision of farming in the past because it's often been extremely harmful and you know farming has sometimes had even greater impacts per unit of production than it has today but what we do in particular today is we absolutely saturate the soil with nutrients and with fertilizing you know with nitrogen phosphorus potassium and sometimes other fertilizers and if you introduce too many nutrients to the soil, paradoxically, it can destroy the soil's fertility. And the reason for that is that adding nitrogen encourages the bacteria to burn through carbon. Now, the majority of organic carbon in the soil takes the form of cement because bacteria turn the carbon into polymers, into glue, which sticks together the whole structure of the soil. So they make little homes for themselves, effectively. They make little capsules in which they live. And then the tiny little scuttling creatures in the soil, the microarthropods, they build those little clusters into slightly bigger clusters of their own. And then the giants of the soil, like ants and worms, build those clusters into bigger clusters of their own. But if you apply too much nitrogen, the response of the bacteria is to burn through the carbon 
And because most of that carbon takes the form of cement, then the building collapses. And instead of having this amazing sort of almost honeycomb structure of the soil, light and airy, with lots of spaces, it just folds down in itself and becomes sodden, airtight and compact, and plant roots can't penetrate it, there's not enough oxygen for them, it's hard to get hold of the nutrients, and so you can actually destroy your fertility by the very means by which you think you're enhancing it. So what that means is that soil treated in this way will become increasingly less productive. And not just that, the use of artificial fertilisers over the course of the last number of years has led to huge issues in our rivers. According to the most recent study by the Environmental Protection Agency, almost half of the waterways in Ireland are polluted by nitrogen. The main causes are the runoff of nutrients, sediment and pesticides from agricultural lands, farmyards and forestry. 63% of the pollution is connected to farming. When nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus enter our waterways, they can cause an increase in the growth of plants. That in turn clogs up our watercourses, uses up oxygen and harms other aquatic life such as insects and fish. It's clear a change is needed. But why partner an interview about soil with a bunch of students having fun growing in a small garden? Well, one thing the Six Class project has done is made them think a bit more about where our food comes from. Because the more we question that, the more we might be able to do something about it talking to people in positions of power, discussing it with our relatives and asking questions, and maybe in the process, learning how you can grow your own food. Most kids now wouldn't really know how to garden or anything. Like, I'd say loads of kids used to know how to, but now I wouldn't say many do. I think other kids should grow vegetables because it's very um, fun and interesting. If you don't learn, you won't know if you'd like it. It's good for the environment and to look around at nature and it's healthy food. It has a great impact because we're not buying plastic, we're just planting and growing and eating. It is sometimes nice just to think about it and like think of a journey that your food has had. Let's say you buy a banana, maybe you should look, or any fruit, you should look at the, like where it's from. I should try to limit the amount of animals that are being killed, That's like including fish. If we just ate like healthy and just stuck to like vegetarian food, we'd be fine. I was pescatarian for two months and I quit because it was quite difficult. Because my family would eat food around me and it was difficult to stick with it. If I could only eat food that I grew myself, I could be able to eat vegetables like tomatoes and carrots, but I wouldn't be able to have like tropical. And I don't know if I'd be able to have meat because I wouldn't want like pigs or anything in my back garden. But I think it would be good and bad at times. I'd say like the good thing about it is just when it's all done, like you just feel like, like all that hard work has finally paid off. Maybe if people started trying to grow their own food, if it was possible for them to do it in their own like home, we could have a slightly more secure future. We're not suggesting that community gardens are the answer to feeding us all. It's clear that there are more mouths to feed than one small plot can deliver. Back in episode 50, we visited Gloss Garden in Ballymun and their gardener Sharon found out that you'd need about 75 square metres to grow enough fruit and veg for a family of four. And that's land we don't all have access to. The Holy Grail, as I see it, is high yield and low impact. A lot of people romanticise low yield farming, a few cows in a field or very low yield organic that we sometimes see being promoted by people. We need to keep yields high, otherwise agriculture sprawls over a vast land area. Agricultural sprawl is far worse than urban sprawl. It occupies far more of the planet's land. And the answer to that, to a very large extent, lies in the soil. 
We need far better knowledge of what's going on underground. We need to be able to see in real time what state and condition that soil is in and use that knowledge to greatly reduce the amount of inputs that, that we need to use to, to grow our crops. Because if we had a much better idea of what was going on in the ground, we could use the relationship between plants, bacteria and fungi far more effectively to maintain high yields, possibly in some instances without any fertilizer or manure at all. If we knew more about the state of soil, we could know when to water, when to fertilize, when to subsoil, do all these things. But at the moment, because we know so little, farmers are kind of obliged just to slap things on and run the tractor over them and do everything which they think needs to be done. Whereas in many cases, perhaps it doesn't. We really need farmers and agriculture to help provide us with the food we eat on a daily basis. Agriculture is here to stay, and we know from the people that we've met in agriculture that there are farmers who want to change and are already doing good work, but they need the supports to do so. I don't think the task is really to change farmers' minds any more than the task is to change the minds of oil companies if we want them to use less oil. We have to change the system. And we have a very powerful means within farming of doing that, which is subsidies. Because um, most farmers in Ireland and indeed in Europe depend on subsidies for their survival. And almost all the subsidies are being perversely spent. They encourage massive environmental destruction. In fact, you can't harvest your pillar one subsidies, which is the main component. It's called the basic payment scheme, unless you destroy nature because the land has to be in what's called agricultural condition. And what that means is the land should have no permanent ineligible features. And what permanent ineligible features translated into English means is wildlife habitats. It's wide hedges, it's, it's ponds, it's um, wetlands, it's trees. All those things are excluded from the basic payment scheme, so you don't get paid if they're on your land. And so it creates this massive, perverse incentive, either to keep the land bare, even when it's producing almost nothing, or to clear land which has got rich wildlife habitats on it. And I've seen the tragic results in Transylvania, in Romania, where vast areas of beautiful habitat have been bulldozed and burnt solely in order to harvest European subsidies. It's really madness. And without those subsidies, or if those subsidies were differently structured, we'd have a very different situation. So you can tweak the subsidy system and actually produce enormous results. And what we desperately need to see from Europe and from national governments is far more research and development into environmentally friendly farming. Environmentally friendly farming is farming that meets the needs of existing and future generations, while also ensuring profitability, environmental health and social and economic equity. It favours techniques that emulate nature to preserve soil fertility, prevent water pollution and protect biodiversity. And in Regenesis' new book, George Monbiot paints a picture of how we can actually achieve it and still feed the world. We're very grateful to George for taking the time to speak with us. His book is available everywhere. His articles for The Guardian are all online and he also has an excellent website, monbio.com. And Gurv Magut to the students and teachers of Kolashtawara for inviting us into their school to talk about how they've engaged with the ground beneath our feet a little bit more. I love going to Mud Island because it's nice to get out of the school with all my friends and it's really good because it's interesting and you can learn a lot of stuff. 
I've gotten exercise, fresh air, enjoyment, and I think I've had a stronger bond with my friends ever since I started going. I was never really a big garden person, but then when I got into Mud Island, they just showed me how important it is to do gardening and stuff like that. It just does be very interesting. I've never done any gardening before and I think I will have a garden when I grow older because of it. I think it's healthy to get out and just explore nature and see what there is in life. The more young people like these students and yourself we have investigating, questioning, reading and engaging with the world around us, from the animals that live in it to the soil which helps grow our food, the better chance we have of shaping a more positive future. My hope comes from the amazing young activists who have stepped up time and again when we thought that there was no hope when we thought that no one was going to do anything we suddenly see these young activists come forward i mean who would have thought that a 15 year old swedish girl could change the entire global conversation incidentally not just about climate but also about neurodiversity all before she was 17 it's just amazing it's incredible what young people can achieve and that is what gives me hope that actually you know these systems which seem so inflexible, so impenetrable. They were created by humans and they were created with a kind of tacit human consent. They're created by powerful people, but the rest of us kind of went along with it. Well, it's time we stopped going along with it and it's time we demanded the systems that we want to see. Ecolution was produced by Nikki Cochran with added assistance from Neve Bennett and it was presented by me, Evie Kenny. This is Anne.